I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews 3. And we will read two of the verses we've already read, plus the rest of the chapter. We'll start at verse 12, and we'll read through verse 19. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would never, that they would, they should never enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Now, Father, I, I pray with all my heart now that the next few minutes of unfolding these words would be blessed with the presence of the Holy Spirit to persuade, to convict, to awaken, to create earnestness and care where there is inattention and carelessness toward our hearts and your word. I pray for unbelievers in our midst that they would be given beyond all their expectation a heart to listen and hear and believe your truth. And I pray for wavering and stumbling saints that they would be put on their feet again and made strong and that we would all be set to fulfill this text toward one another in servanthood this fall. I commend these minutes to you and ask for salvation, perseverance, and strength, and hope, and the boast in our confidence firm to the end. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we focused on verse 6 and verse 14 and on the two big ifs in those verses. And I want to get it on the table again and then look at verses 12 and 13 and then ask how we at this church ought to so structure ourselves and relate to one another as to fulfill God's word to us in these verses. So let's go to verse 6, pick up where we were last week. Second half of the verse, chapter 3, verse 6 where it says whose house we are, we are his, Christ's house, his household, his people, his redeemed ones. We are his house if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm to the end. Now notice carefully, like we did last week, it does not say we will become Christ's house if we hold fast our hope. 
It does say we are now, today, Christ's house if we go on holding fast to our hope. Which means that the holding fast to our hope now and in the future is the proof and evidence and verification and demonstration that we became and are now the house of God. Now look at verse 14. Same truth, only it becomes even clearer because of the tense of the verb. It says literally, we have become partakers of Christ. That's the same as we are his house. We have become partakers of Christ if, second big if, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end. Now notice again what it does not say. It does not say we will become partakers of Christ in the future if we hold fast to this assurance. It says the opposite. It says we have become partakers in the past if today and in the future we hold fast to our assurance. You see it. In other words... Holding fast to our assurance verifies that something real and lasting happened to us. What would be the conclusion? I asked this last week. Let me see if you remember. What would be the conclusion if we do not hold fast to our assurance? According to verse 14. Here's what the answer is not. The answer is not, if you do not hold fast your assurance, then you cease to be a partaker of Jesus Christ. That is not what this text says. It says, if you do not hold fast, then you have not become a partaker of Jesus Christ. Which means that persevering in confidence and hope and faith proves that you became a partaker of Jesus. And if you do not persevere in faith and confidence and hope, it doesn't prove you can lose any salvation. It proves you never did become a partaker of Christ Jesus. Which is why I said last week, this book, Hebrews, teaches eternal security. That is, it teaches that if you have truly become a partaker of Jesus, you will always be a partaker of Jesus. Another way to say it is that if you are a child of God, you cannot cease to be a child of God. But this troubling book makes very clear that it is not naive this book knows, and you know, that many people make a start in the Christian life, walk an aisle, pray a prayer, sign a card, join a church, get baptized, eat communion, and leave the Lord forever. And this book makes very clear what the explanation for that is. And it isn't that you can lose participation in Christ once you have it. The explanation of this book is, read it right off the face of verse 14, if we persevere 
then we have become partakers. And if we do not persevere, we never did become partakers. And that's why I say this book teaches eternal security. But it teaches it in a way that is so different than the way so many people seem to believe it today. My security, John Piper's hope of getting to heaven and living forever with God rather than going to hell and suffering and torment. My security does not lie in any remembered act in my past. It lies in God's promise to preserve me in faith forever. God's faithfulness to His promise is my hope, not any particular act of mine in the past. My hope is Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in John Piper will complete it to the day of Christ. That's my only hope. Because this verse says very plainly, if John Piper, no matter whether he's been a pastor of this church for 16 years and a Christian for 44 years... Supposedly, if he makes shipwreck of his faith, if he leaves the Lord, if he's out of here and against the Lord, he's done for and gone to hell. My only hope is that that will not happen. And I believe with all my heart it will not happen. Not because I prayed with my mother in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, when I was six to receive Jesus, but because Jesus reigns in my life. And he has promised to go on reigning for those who are born of God. Jesus is my hope. Now this raises questions. Let's ask one or two of them. Here's one. One of them was asked last Sunday to me. Well, if our failure to hold fast our hope and confidence means that we never really were partakers of Christ... What are we falling away from in verse 12? Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart falling away or turning away from the living God. Unless you stumble over the word brethren and ask another question, which I didn't take time to address, but will anyway because it comes to my mind here. Uh, how can he call them brethren if he entertains the possibility of their departing from the Lord? The answer is there is such a thing as false brethren. They're referred to repeatedly in the New Testament. The apostles call the church brethren, brothers and sisters, knowing, like it says in 2 Corinthians 13.5, that they must also say, test yourselves, brothers and sisters, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith lest you fail the test and prove to be false brothers. One of the worst things in Paul's life was false brothers. People in the church who were false. So this word brethren guarantees nothing in the hearers. It's the judgment of charity. I look out on a congregation like this and I say, let's be what we are in Christ, knowing that in this room there are unbelievers. So it was in the letters that were read to the churches in the early first century. But let's not stumble over that. Let's get the, the real issue here of what are you falling away from? 
If you never participated in Christ, then what are you falling from? Now, the answer to that is in the context, in its dealing with the people of Israel. We spent some time on this last week. Let's just spend some more time on it here. In verses 7 to 11, what you have is a quotation of Psalm 95 and a reference to the people of Israel and their experience of relating to God and falling away from God. So it is true the way it was true for them. Now, how was it true for them? Verse 9, for example, says, They saw my works, God's works, they saw my works for 40 years. Now, that's how near they got to God. They walked under God's works. The Red Sea divided before them. The sea buried their enemies. The shirt didn't wear out on their back. The shoes didn't wear out on their feet. Bread came down from heaven from God Almighty. Water came out of a rock. Good laws poured out of Sinai for their enlightenment. Defeat of their enemies on all sides. Leniency when they were recalcitrant. They saw God. They were led by pillars of fire and smoke. They tasted enlightenment. The power of the Spirit was all over them. And they fell in the wilderness. And he swore, they will not enter my rest. Because they saw it and they didn't trust him. Murmur, murmur, murmur. How many times in this world God puts the sun and the clouds and the wind and the rain and lakes and trees and boats and children and books and barbecues and good night's rests and sex and food on our table for day after day after day. Not a word of thanks goes up. And then we break our arm and say, where are you? I tell you, when we get to heaven and the whole of redemptive history is displayed, nobody will open his mouth against God. There is, just look at this sun coming in here. Feel this air conditioning. We all deserve judgment right now. God is caressing you. He's folding you into His love right now. And those of you who have tasted of what the gospel could do for you, who have grown up in Christian families, who have sat under biblical preaching, who have gone to Sunday school, this is what you can fall away from. It's not hard to explain what you can fall away from and never have been converted. There is so much good, so much grace, so much love surrounding people, especially people who've grown up near and around and in the church. These readers here, just look at them. They... Um, participated in signs and wonders, according to chapter 2, verse 4. God had shown signs and wonders in their midst. They had been folded into a loving congregation. They had experienced measures of the Spirit's work in their lives. They had glimpsed the light of the gospel and been enlightened in measure. They had been baptized. They had eaten communion. They had listened to preaching 
and some of them were about to fall away. And the explanation of this book is that they had not become partakers of Jesus. They had not become partakers of Jesus. Jesus, I just spent a good bit of time in Matthew this week. Jesus taught on these things over and over and over again. I have on my piece of paper right here in front of me, ten passages of Scripture to the effect that we must be careful not to lose our attachment to Him by failing to persevere in obedience. Let me just read one of them that sheds a good deal of light on Hebrews. When we get to Hebrews 6, we'll read how close these people had come into the experience of God. And yet we're not born again. We're not partakers of Christ. But here, Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, Jesus says, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I... Is he going to say, I knew you once and stopped knowing you? It's not what he's going to say. He's going to say, I never knew you. You never became mine. Now take note. You can prophesy. You can cast out demons. And you can work miracles and be lost. Saving faith is loving, leaning on, resting in, hoping in, being confident in Christ for who He is. It is possible to love the nitty-gritty spiritual gift stuff for itself and its own titillating power in your life quite apart from a living relationship with Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Blows your mind how close you can get to the fire and not be saved. I never knew you. You never were a partaker of Christ. So that's question number one. How can you fall away if you never were a partaker of Christ? And the answer is there are many ways to partake of the nearness of God and the power of God without trusting Him or hoping in Him or loving Him for who He is. Question number two, last question. What are we going to do with this? How shall we know and enjoy and be assured of our eternal security? And there are two answers to this question, one in verse 12, the general one, and one in verse 13, the specific one. Let's read verse 12. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil heart of unbelief or an evil unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. Now, what's the answer there for what shall we do to maintain our assurance? And the answer is take care. What does your Bible say? Take heed, be on the watch, 
There are so many nonchalant Christians. There's so many in this room who coast, who drift. Second Corinthians 13.5 says, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Second Peter 1.10 says, be diligent to confirm your election and your calling. Don't coast. Don't be passive. Proverbs 4.23 says, Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Are you watching over your heart, brothers and sisters? Do you get up in the morning and take heart stock? As you go to bed at night, do you look at your heart and say, Do I trust Him? Am I leaning on Him? Is He my hope? Is He my confidence? Or are you just coasting? Someone may ask, well, John, look, if I'm a true believer, a partaker, if I'm a partaker in Christ, as I believe I am, why do I have to take heed to be so vigilant when you said that I'm eternally secure and can't lose my salvation? It looks like a contradiction to me. You tell me that if I'm a true partaker in Jesus, that I'm secure, and now you're telling me, take heed, be vigilant, be earnest, watch out. The problem with that question is that it assumes something that the New Testament says is false. It assumes that God's way for His chosen people to get from here to glory, from here to heaven, is without earnestness, without self-assessment, without watchfulness, without vigilance, without diligence. It assumes that when, in fact, the New Testament says in Luke 13, 24, strive to enter by the narrow gate. For many are those who strive and do not enter. First Peter 5, 8 says, Be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. You can't coast to heaven. Coasting leads one direction only. The other way. The truth is not that Christians don't have to be vigilant and watchful over their hearts. The truth is, you can know you're a Christian if you're vigilant. I'm going to say that again. The truth is not that secure Christians don't have to be vigilant over their hearts. The truth is, the evidence of your being a Christian is that you are vigilant over your heart. When you hear these warnings about the devil... And how unbelief is all around you clamoring to rob Christ from you. You fight. And the evidence of being born of God is the fight. And the evidence of not being born of God is cavalier, careless, drifting. You want to know if you're an unbeliever? Check your fight. Let me ask this. Let me ask it this way. Do you treat your conversion or your Christianity like a vaccination? 
or like a relationship? Do you believe that you have been inoculated against hell? Or do you believe that you have a relationship with the one who has the keys of hell? If you treat your salvation as an inoculation, then you get it one day? And how many of you thought about your your polio vaccination this week? Raise your hand if you thought about it. Christ gets lots of glory like that, doesn't he? Christ does not save people in a way that gets him no glory. He is not a vaccination. He is not an inoculation. He is a person living, real, and we are saved by virtue of attachment to him. Living. Attachment to Him by faith and trust and confidence and hope in Him. And I will not go to hell because my Jesus has the keys of hell and I'm with Him. There's no inoculation at six years old that did it. I thought about spinning this analogy out a little further. could get into trouble when you do this. Some inoculations take and some don't, you know. Do it again. It doesn't take. Well, that wouldn't be a bad way to talk about what conversion really is. That is, conversion as a vaccination that takes brings you into a relationship. It so works in your body that you're drawn out to Jesus. That is what conversion is. The vaccination at six years old took if it is producing pro-Jesus enzyme, enzymes, or I don't know how they work. You, 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 do the, you do the illustration. If my heart is inclined to Jesus, the vaccination took. If my heart is all over the map, I love TV and I love sports and I love my family and I love my job and Jesus, maybe Sunday, It didn't take. There's no protection in that. If we hold fast. So the answer to the first question is take heed. Don't be a coaster. Don't be one who treats your salvation like a vaccination. Last last answer to the the last question. Um, Verse 13. This is the question, what are we going to do as a church to live out this kind of eternal security. Encourage or exhort one another day after day, as long as it is called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Eternal security is a community project. You see that in that verse? I read it again. You tell me if you think that's right. Exhort one another. That's community project. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Why? Because this is one of God's appointed means, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And when they were hardened in the wilderness, according to verse 7, God swore they will never enter his rest. You, you wonder why I'm serious about church? Why I don't 
want this hour to be fun and games? It's real simple. Some of you are going to go to hell or heaven because of what happens in this hour. You see, my, my view of salvation is such that every message is a salvation message. I don't do a salvation message and a saint message. Every message is verse 13. Oh, that this morning the Holy Spirit would come and so speak a truth that this week they would hold fast to Christ one more week and not make shipwreck of their faith and prove to have been fake. You see what's at stake for me every week? Now let me broaden this out. We as elders in this church see a lot more than John Piper's preaching in verse 13. And so do you with the word one another, each other. You see that? Exhort one another. This is not merely one man exhorting 890 people. This is 890 people in settings where they can say to one another what needs to be said so that faith perseveres and so that the deceitfulness of sin gets defeated. Every day, this afternoon, it's going to happen to you. You'll flick on the TV or you'll read something or you'll take a walk and a thought will come into your mind or something will come into your eyes and the effect it will be, it'll have will be a deceptive statement. This is better than Bible. This is better than worship. This is better than prayer. This is better than Jesus. In fact, your whole direction towards that is a big waste of the one life you've got. Come on. That's happening every day in every heart. How are we together going to do, verse 13, exhort or encourage one another day after day, every day, not just once a week on Sunday morning from a pastor, as long as it is called today, that as long as there's a chance that we can be saved, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is so deceptive. Right now it's at work in some of your lives, drawing you away from God. And he brought you here this morning to stun you broad awake like he did some people last week that I've talked to. Now, the elders see this. And I'm almost done. I'm going to tell you what the elders are planning and just beckon you into it. The elders see this. We've seen it for years. We've prayed. We've agonized. We've said, how do you do church, Lord? How do you beat church with a thousand people? There were 998 people in church last Sunday. When we go back to two services and the students come back and people settle in after vacations, there'll be 1,200 people. How do you do church on Sunday and through the week so that this happens and our people don't abort? And the answer we have over and over, year after year, is dial up small groups. If we don't get our people ministering to one another like verse 13... Well, by and large, John will do his best on Sunday morning. The rest, of, we're just going to play games. And so, this fall, we're going to do small groups every Sunday night. And we're going to take some of what we were doing on the alternative Sunday night services and put them on Wednesday night. And I won't go into detail about how we're going to do that, but I am so excited. I spent almost all day Friday working out a diagram that we will use to make plain how Wednesday night flows so that you can see how worship 
and nurture and fellowship and hanging out and teaching and storytelling about the great works of God in our midst sit together on a Wednesday night and how every Sunday night will be available for you to do this to each other. You've got to learn to do this. Your heart will soar. You will feel the power of the Holy Spirit on you. You will be so transformed when you get into relationships where you go to a small group or one-on-one or one-on-three and think, I must say something that will help them persevere in hope and encouragement in their confession firm to the end. That's what it's all about. Fighting the fight of faith corporately. Let me close with this observation. I asked the question this week, why would God ordain that there be a Christian life and a perseverance in faith that involves so much struggle and so much uh, mutual exhortation and so much earnestness and so much warfare? And the answer I came to is this. Had he designed a Christian life that was based on vaccinations and inoculations and we all just kind of coasted on to heaven... Jesus wouldn't get nearly the glory that he does because when you have to exhort one another, when I have to expose myself to this staff and let them say, John, this or that, you spend the time you should in the Word. You spend the time you should with your kids. Or you spend your time you should in visiting. And let them ask that question. For Christ's sake, Christ gets honor. But if we don't have to say anything to each other and we just all kind of, with our inoculation, drift toward heaven, where's Christ in all that? Christ ordained this one another ministry so that he's constantly on the table. He's constantly the center of attention in our church. Now, here's the way I want us to close this morning. I want to pray for those of you who are seriously or maybe even halfway considering leadership of a small group. So think right now before I ask you to stand uh, for prayer. I'm not going to ask you to come up here yet or today, but just stand so I can pray for you in a concerted way. The question I'm asking is this, and this should, of course, is not nearly everybody, just a few handfuls of people around the congregation. Either you're planning to lead a small group, or you're thinking seriously about it, or uh, maybe God this morning, for the first time, has done something that's causing you to say, maybe I should pray earnestly about this. So standing is no commitment to do it. It's a willingness to just let me bless you with a prayer. And the, and the small group, you define it. Okay? You define it. Bethlehem group, non-Bethlehem group, three people, 18 people. I'm not interested in that. If that's you, would you stand, please? Okay, now look around. Let's pray for these people. And, and some of you who are still sitting, uh, God's going to probably in the next four weeks touch you. That that right there, you know, would would create... A lot of uh, a lot of small groups. So uh, while the while the worship team is gathering, I'm going to pray, and then when I'm done praying, I'm going to have the rest of you stand, and we're going to sing the first verse of "Brother, Let Me Be Your Servant" and the last verse, "Sister, Let Me Be Your Servant," as our closing song. And the reason I want us to sing that is as a way of doing right now for each other Hebrews 3:13. This is an exhortation. This is what you you walk up to a brother. And you say, Garth, let me be your servant. Let me be as Christ to you. And pray that I would have the grace to let me be your servant to you. This is what we do to one another. Okay? Let's pray. Father, for these brothers and sisters who are standing right now, 
I ask for a completion of the resolve and the sense of calling. I don't want to coerce any one of them to do what you might not be calling them to do. We only want them to follow you. So, Lord, I pray for them that you would fill them now with a sense of expectancy, with a sense of joy, with a sense of power. We don't want small groups at Bethlehem to be a drain. We want them to be life-giving and not life-depleting. We don't want people to sigh and say, oh, another meeting to go to. Just the opposite. Oh, God. We want them to be powerful, life-giving, hope-building, faith-sustaining, perseverance-enabling gatherings. So would you, Father, come and bless them, help them, strengthen them. And I'm sure there are others, Lord, who you're going to touch in these days to get ready to lead our small groups. And all the people said, Amen.